Nurses and Hypochondriacs, the podcast that brings nurse experts, patients, and hypochondriacs together to discuss hot topics in healthcare. And here is your host, Ercilia Pompilio. It's been really rough out there for all my healthcare peeps. I mean, I hear the stories on a daily basis. I I see the stories on Facebook that the nurses tell, that my nurse friends tell, and it's brutal. I hear you, and the burnout is real. And so that's why when I saw this poem uh, written by Lincoln Cannon called I Should Have Said No, it totally spoke to me, and and I feel that it speaks to everyone in healthcare, especially nurse practitioners too. So I have invited Lynn Kincannon on. She's a recently retired nurse practitioner, and she is going to read her poem, I Should Have Said No, that was published in Pulse, which is a literary journal. We're also going to talk about what's going on today, her experiences as a nurse practitioner, and she's going to share her love for poetry. And can you believe Lynn writes a poem a day and posts it to her Facebook? That's pretty fascinating. This is another fun episode, and you won't want to miss it, especially if you're experiencing burnout in the healthcare arena. We're going to give you some really great tips on how to find a creative outlet to help you ward off that burnout. But first, a word from our sponsor. sequels. Some of them are good. Most of them are bad. But on the Sequels Revenge podcast, we're here to celebrate all things sequels. Host John Coulomb and Bill Posley bring on a guest to talk about their favorite movies, and then we pitch a sequel to it. It's a sequel that nobody asked for, but one that we'd like to see. Then we go away, write the first five pages to the sequel, bring in a table of actors to read it. So if any of this sounds appealing to you, you should download Sequels Revenge podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play stores. Welcome to Nurses and Hypochondriacs, Lincoln Cannon. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So glad to be here with you. So glad to have you. You You are my first poet. Wonderful. Wonderful. (laughs) I'm so excited that you are my first nurse poet to have on. Uh, And so this is going, you have inspired a series. I just wanted to let you know that. Um, So I want to have two other poets on, uh, which I'm very excited about. So Mm -hmm. I'm still in the process of producing those two episodes, but I love it that you are my first nurse poet. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, well, um, I was born in the Chicago area and uh, grew up and moved to Champaign, Illinois, where I got my ADN degree. Um, but prior to that, I was working in bars and restaurants and just making a living and um, kind of um, haphazardly took all these courses that, that pointed me towards nursing. And I got into nursing school and, you know, went, graduated when I was 28 for nursing school. And, um, and then, you know, right away, we moved to Florida, where my ex-husband was getting his doctoral degree. So I worked at the University of Florida Shands Hospital, which was a, you know, immersion into (laughs) into intensive care and, you know, quick learning of of intensive care nursing. So it was really wonderful experience. Yeah, I had five years there. And, you know, I had um, 
moved around a lot then after my husband got his PhD, we moved around a lot and I started working ERs. ERs, uh, I worked there for 10 years. I worked at Chance for five and then various ERs um, for 10 years until I went back to get my nurse practitioner degree at the uh, Medical College of Virginia. Yeah, so then I moved to Colorado after I graduated and I've been here ever since 21 years ago working in the field of cardiology or CV surgery as a nurse practitioner. Yeah. That's awesome. So yeah. how did you get into poetry? You write one yeah. poem a day, by the way, on Facebook, right? Yeah. That's, that's awesome. It's really amazing practice. And I, you know, it's almost like journaling. And um, I was at a workshop. I do a lot of poetry workshops. And um, I was at a workshop and one of the, um, Rosemary Traumer, she's a fabulous poet over here on the Western Slope. She was a poet laureate for a number of years. She was writing a poem a day and she challenged us to write a poem a day for a month. And I loved it so much and I felt like it really helped my craft. And so I just kept it going and I've been posting a poem on Facebook every day. So it's been really a wonderful experience. I got into poetry. I don't know. I was a sixth grade English teacher, right? Everybody's got an English teacher. <laughs> <laughs> who made us diagram all these sentences and memorize all these poems and stand up in the front of the class and recite them. And I, um, I loved it. I loved English. I was, I immersed myself in reading. It was one of the ways that I coped with my life. It was one of the ways that I handled, you know, um, stress. I would just open a book. And um, so I did a lot of reading. I joined the great books club and, you know, I was just really reading all the time. And then I, I started to write probably in high school, you know, but it wasn't very good, but it was, you know, it was lovely, you know, to write. I journaled. And then my sister really encouraged me to go on writing because she really liked my poetry. And, um, but I didn't really start to really write until I was in my late thirties, early forties when I moved here to Colorado, really. Yeah. And so what do you think inspired you to write at that age and to really get into it? What was going on in your life? Were you looking at it as a stress relief, maybe from being a nurse? Did that help? I wish I had had better stress reliefs. <laughs> you know, when I was working at the University of Florida, our stress relief a lot was in the ICUs. No matter what was happening, we could have been taking care of um, oh, somebody who was drinking himself to death and we would go out and drink as a um, as a way to relieve our stress, right? We would always think <laughs> and that's what we would do. We would go out and, and drink and never really, you know, connect the two, what we were doing. And but that was the way to relieve stress in that period of my life, you know, and and then, you know, when I came, when I got my nurse practitioner degree, it was even a higher level of stress. Of course it was, right? It was, you know, um, I moved here to Colorado where nurse practitioning actually began in Colorado Springs um, as a response to not having enough physicians in pediatrics. So, but when I moved here, there were no nurse practitioners here. There were none um, at, the, at the hospital where I work. It's now the University of Colorado system, UC Health, um, but they didn't have any nurse practitioners, just one who was just getting her degree and starting um, somewhat of a program in, in CV surgery and cardiology. Um, hired me as their first nurse practitioner, though they had a physician's assistant. And so it was a lot of groundbreaking, you know, and so to relieve stress, I, 
you know, there was a Loveland, Colorado is a big poetry hub. It's really huge. And they would, they would have all these poet laureates of the United States come and speak. So I started to go watch them and then they had open mics and I would go to these open mics and listen. And that's when they would prompt, they would send prompt you home with a prompt and I would start writing the prompts. And that's how I do a lot of my writing today off of prompts. Cause you can imagine if you write a poem a day, you got to like have inspiration somehow. Oh, so and, true. Uh, yeah. Yeah. You have to be very open to your environment, very present and looking at stuff that happens, all those beautiful serendipities and that magic that occurs, right? Exactly. Exactly. I always say that I look through the world, look at the world through the eyes of a poet. I just, that's the way I look at it. You know, like it is just, I take it home with me and I write about it. And, you know, now it's just how I process the world, you know, good and bad beautiful and ugly. That's how I, I love that. That so you process a world through poems. Right. That yeah. is so healing. It is appealing. Yeah, it, it is. is. Healing. <laughs> and it's a healing <laughs> one too. It is it's healing. And healing. healing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. So your poem. So tell us about your poem um that that's how I connected with you. I saw someone post your poem that you got published in Pulse. Uh And Pulse is a a, a literary journal type uh, Mm -hmm. for medicine, right? Online magazine for medicine and science and, you know, sciences, but mostly medicine and nurses, you know, a lot of people write for that journal. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's a, you know, they take all forms of writing and it's really a wonderful way to process too, when you read that magazine, because it's very resonant, but what we have experienced, as you know. Yeah. So your poem is titled, I should have said no. (laughs) (laughs) A little bit about how you got before you read it. It's a great title. I love that. I'm so excited to hear you read it. It's it's such a great title. Um, because as a nurse practitioner and as a nurse, we've all been there mm-hmm. <laughs> when, when you're just like, uh, why did I say yes to this? You know? Yeah. Uh, so, so what inspired you yeah. to write? Oh my gosh. Oh, well, you know, I read a New York times article, um, and it was a very compelling New York times article, very long article about the ethics of healthcare and burnout. And um, it really pointed towards the system of healthcare uh, where um, physicians, doctors, everybody, respiratory therapists, aides were actually compelled to give 100% to the organization and sacrifice themselves for them through the ethics of healthcare. You know, if you think about it, we are healers, we are, we are, we have, we take oaths, right, to heal people and do no harm. We are compelled to help our fellow worker. We, it's all teamwork. And there's just this, the uh, milieu of the healthcare system in this article was saying that they really take advantage of that of who we are as human beings, right? They take advantage of our of our goodness and our ethics and our desire to help. And, and so we have bought into kind of the system where we work 60 hours a week, you know, without even thinking and, um, and come to burnout. I probably have been in burnout three times in my career. Now, not that I had any physical breakdown, I, I, but I had addictions that I had to shake, you know, eating alcohol. Um, yeah, 
other things. But, you know, those are things that I just had to shake because I just had to, you know, I had to let go of and I had to process and remove, but that's how I dealt with all of that stress. I couldn't say no. I didn't feel like I had the right to say no, but that was my work ethic too. You know, I'm 66 years old. So I was raised in that generation where you worked very hard, <laughs> you wow. know, you, you just worked and, and all my coworkers worked like I worked and, you know, it was like, you never said no. Never. I don't remember. I would go to work sick. I very, I think I probably had, I'm not kidding you, four days of sick time in my 30 something career. That's how like, <laughs> you know, born to please I was. Yeah. Yeah. Nurses are people pleasers. I mean, we're very empathic. We're people pleasers. We really majority of nurses, I mean, there's good and bad in everything, but majority of nurses do really want the good for their patients uh, and, and for everyone that they're working with right, overall. Exactly. I think yeah. they get yeah. a lot of compassion fatigue that's going on now. And I think they get yeah. so pushed to the limit, mm. you know, where they get into these um, habits uh, and addictions that they don't even realize because they become so commonplace into their subconscious, right? It becomes so normal for them to, like you said, be in the ER and maybe you were dealing with someone who was an alcoholic and has been there a frequent flyer for the 10th time, you know, or that overdose person that's been there for the umpteenth time near death and you go home and what happens, you, you know, you, are drinking a bottle of wine today or, <laughs> you know, to relieve that is your stress reliever, or maybe you get so addicted into exercising right. obsessively. obsessively. I work with like four nurses who are marathon runners and they just, they really have to do that. They have to run or else their anxiety levels are really high, you know? So they are, they are people that, you know, uh, take it to that extreme, um, but probably a healthier addiction, of course, than alcohol and food. But, you know, at the same time, it is something that they it's need still to- an addiction, you know, yeah. even though it's a healthy addiction, it you still are obsessive that you have to do it. And you're preoccupied with it. If I don't do this, then this is going to happen. And that's what's going on in your, your mind, you know, yeah. or whatever you're running away from that trauma that you've never dealt with, or like, hey, maybe this job isn't so great for me. And I have to look for something else. Because it's, yeah. it's just not feeding my soul anymore. And to really be there and realize that that's what you're doing is very, very difficult. Um, I can see that. For me, my stress release was telling stories nice. <laughs> <laughs> about all the men that I dated, you know, and actually going on to date many dates and meeting people and relating and, and, and trying to talk to something, trying to discuss topics that had nothing to do with healthcare. You know, uh, and, and for me, I found it and I'm very lucky to be in Los Angeles and, and I, I was able to get in with a group of people who had no health care in their system. Right. And so okay. they were writers, they were artists, they were creators, um, actors, storytellers, yeah. comedians. And it was such a beautiful, beautiful experience. Yeah. And this really embraced me into their group you know, even Mm -hmm. though I was kind of the outlier. Uh, But they did see my creativity and my creativeness wanting to birth out again. Right. Uh, And and it was really interesting. Uh Um, One point I wanted to touch up on, uh, 
before we move on with your poem is I can relate to you as in sixth grade. That's when I started writing as well. Um, I think that I wasn't doing so well in English and I needed some, I, I was just bored. I, I, I was one of those kids. The reason why I didn't do good in grade school was I was dyslexic. And also I was very, very bored. Like I have to be, something has to be very interesting for me. Like if I get a boring teacher, that's terrible. Mm-hmm. I just check out, you know, yeah. uh, and, and so this one teacher who was boring, she was a little flat, but she was a, a very young new teacher. Um, she came up the, with the idea to write an advice column. So she came to me and she said, you need some extra credit. I think this is great for you. And so we had an advice box. So all the kids in the class would go ahead and put in their problems and I would take them and then write just wacky comments to them. And then uh, the teacher guided yeah. And she's like, okay, like, yeah, it's like this guy's picking his nose too much. Cause I think what, like some of the kids would be like, I see Joey picking his nose and cleaning it on the desk and it's disgusting. And goes, so I had to come up with a solution like for that person is like, why don't you go buy him a box of Kleenex? You know? Yeah. <laughs> and that person That's actually. My advice. <laughs> did take my advice and they said it was pretty funny uh but uh stuff like that so I I also did and and you look amazing for 66 by the way oh thank you very vibrant so uh maybe Colorado keeps you young you know I'm hiking all the time and snowshoeing and so it just keeps you young here definitely I don't know if the dry air keeps you young but definitely the lifestyle yeah yeah so whenever you're ready, I would love for you to jump into your poem and then we could talk a little bit more about that. Okay. All right. My poem. I should have said no. Can you see this patient today? His appointment is tomorrow. He came all the way from Nebraska. Can you work extra tomorrow? We're short, just four hours extra. Would you be able to work Christmas this year? I know. I'm sorry. You've worked most of them, but Sally's mother is dying. Can you work extra weekends? When she quit, that put us in such a bind. We need you in now, a mass casualty alarm. I need you to be on this new committee. You'll have to work harder today. Ben's child is sick. No one can come in. You'll have to go home today. The census is low. No, you don't get paid. You'll have to use your vacation time. There's a disaster alert. Can you come in? Can you move any of your patients? I know it's 7 p.m., but the ICU is full. We have a code blue coming in. We have a new console. I know it's time for you to leave, but this patient is sick and it needs to be seen. There's a new computer update. We have to chart even more data. No, I'm sorry you you can't have your husband's birthday off. We really don't have the extra help. You will need to prove you are competent. Here are 20 tests to take each year. No, we can't hire more relief. They cost too much to train. No, you can't get a raise. Yes, I know the cost of living here has skyrocketed. Our study shows we pay what local hospitals pay. The cost of your health insurance is going up again. Yes, I know. I wish it included natural medicine too. We want you to take a survey to tell us how happy you are working for this organization. The patient you just saw has no insurance. The patient you just saw cannot have that test. His insurance company is denying it. Can you call them? The patient you just saw is complaining about you. The patient you just saw wants to change providers. The patient you just saw fainted in the waiting room. The patient you did a treadmill on yesterday died last night. The patient you just saw asked for your phone number. 
Can you be on call tonight? Oh, you were on call the last four nights in a row? You've gone without sleep for 48 hours? How can that be? You only have 15 people on your list. Can you take this extra shift? Your last patient just called. They are on their way. Their child was sick and they had to find a babysitter. The patient in room 301 has taken a turn for the worse. The patient in 222 wants to leave and now. There was a large crash on the highway. Can you stay? You missed one of the medications on discharge. Medicare isn't going to pay for their stay. You forgot to add this to your patient's record. You forgot to chart his allergies. You really need to lengthen your history of physicals. We can bill higher if you chart more. Can you see this patient during your lunch hour? She called complaining of incisional drainage. Can you call this patient back today? She sounded like she was in a lot of pain. You're going on vacation again? You say you really want to retire? What would you do in retirement? You spend so much time and money on your career. You have so much respect in the community. Everyone loves you. You're the best. You say you would never have entered healthcare if you had to do it all over again? What can I do to help? It's too late. Are you sick? Are you okay? Don't cry. I love that. Bravo. Thank you. It is just, it's just such a deep poem. It, it is so real, you know, very relatable really to real. every nurse practitioner out there. And especially now there's just so much going on, especially mm-hmm. in the nurse practitioner world, right. very chaotic, mm-hmm. uh, lots of grittiness, I guess you can say people are looking for alternatives. People are looking for stress relievers. And this is just such a great poem. I mean, what I really loved about your poem, um, just the computer updates. (laughs) (laughs) On my last day of work before I retired, I had to change my password. (laughs) On the very last day, I had to change the password. I mean, that is just so insane. Yes, and and how all the tests that we have to do to make sure that we're competent, mm-hmm. right? Right, all the and, CPA, um, CMEs and oh my gosh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and the then denying all the of you- days off, and the denying of days off, right? Yeah, you can right. have your husband's birthday off. Yeah. <laughs> all right, you know. Yeah. And, and we've talked about this before. I've had a nurse practitioner on Irene Willedge, and she wanted to do. Uh, a podcast episode about how we're almost like we, we go through all this schooling, we go through all this really grueling testing just to get through and just to get this job. And all of a sudden you're, you can't do anything. You can't even go to, you can't even go take a pee. I mean, <laughs> it, it's like, you can't get days off and here, here you are as a master's degree and, and you have to almost work like a slave, you know, and it's very, very sad. And I think it's about time that that system changes somewhat. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, physicians are no different. I mean, I got a lot of comments on that poem from physicians, how they were just absolutely at the end of their careers and ropes at at young ages, really, they just couldn't do it. They couldn't handle it. They were being, too much was being asked of them. And, you know, they made much more money than we did doing much of the, you know, a lot of the same work, they had a lot more responsibility, but, you know, I, um, I don't know, it is just the system. We accepted it, right? I mean, when I first got my nurse practitioner job, they paid me really low. I was making almost as much as I was making as a nurse, you know, and then the job was less so- a nurse. Yeah. <laughs> Say that again. 
I was making less than a nurse. Yeah, because you could get that overtime, right? And you could, or not. Um, no. Just didn't I, work those hours for one thing, right? Right. I was working 12 hours a day. So if you take 12 hours a day and take your salary, you know, the nurses were making more than I was. And that was, right. no, not to say that nurses shouldn't make a lot of money, but I, having this master's degree and having the responsibility that they gave me and, you know, my prescriptive license and everything, you know, I just felt like I should have been making a lot of money. And that was my, you know, my mistake. I should have done some research, but there was nobody working here to really, you know, say what I should be making, right? I was the first mass practitioner. So I went in underpaid and I never really got up there. You know, I never really got the salary I deserved in my career. Right. And I don't think people, when you're in school, they really educate you like, listen, this is what you're going to be doing. This is what you're worth. Nobody talks about your self-worth. We need a class and setting up for ourselves for sure. Exactly. On, on this is, I am worth this much money for what I'm going to do. And I learned that the hard way. I mean, I was a great negotiator. Um, I came from a gambling family, so (laughs) I had that down, but then with with, with the money thing, you know, I remember going to my first uh, nurse practitioner interview or I, I, I went on a couple and I kept just pushing them off because they weren't offering anything. Like they'd want to give me $35 an hour with no benefits. Mm-hmm. Here I was making as a registry nurse, $55 an hour plus time and a half, you know, plus I got uh, healthcare benefits through my registry company, which was amazing. Uh, and, and all of a sudden now I have to work nine to five, five days a week with $35 and I, I would just walk away. And I, and I remember I negotiated for $10 more and I felt that I just needed to finally jump in and start getting my experience. Cause I just wasn't finding anything else at that time. And I did, and it was exhausting. And, and sometimes the manager would come and uh, I, I would work eight hours. She's like, no, you're working seven because they didn't want to pay me as a full-time employee. So it's just all these things that I accept. Why am I accepting this? Why am I accepting working these hours, seeing 60 patients a day because it was a private pediatric practice. I was commuting very far and I, and I did it for a year because I felt, and that's what they tell you, just, you know, suck wow. it up for a year. And so I did and I left and it was the best thing ever. And it, it took talking to this guy who had no degree, who had been in prison, who oh, learned yeah. how to be, who <laughs> learned how to be a, a real estate broker, who acquired many oh, properties and also all of a sudden became this millionaire you know, was driving a hundred thousand dollar BMW. And he was like, you don't think you could get something better. You have a master's degree from UCLA. Just that, just his talk. I think he talked to me for 15 minutes. I went in the next day and I quit and I walked out. Yeah. He's like, goodbye. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. Why am I here? You yeah. know? Yeah. I never had the nerve to do anything like that. I stuck jobs out for a long time. I really did. Every job I had, I stayed with. And it was, you know, that was just my personality, I guess, really. You know? Well, I think it's the nurse, it's the nurse practitioner personality. It's the nurse personality where they feel that this is this, there's not anything better out there. And, and I coach so many nurse practitioners to yeah. really feel their worth and, and to know, like, what is it that you really want to do with yourself? Like, when I made the shift of becoming an entrepreneur and I didn't even know what I was doing, I just really had to trust 
in my intuitive guidance and I had to trust with what I was doing. Uh, everything that I was doing was never created before, you know, and yeah. I really had to feel into it. And like I said, I'm, I'm very thankful to my creative peeps out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, my Hollywood peeps that, that helped me and guided me. And I, I was able to network with them and they gave me the confidence to do what I did, uh, especially going and doing storytelling at the moth and at the UCB and in these fabulous places here yeah. uh, in Los Angeles. Yeah. And so I was able to shift out of that and I started creating um, and, it, and it took quite a long time. It took about five to six years to where now uh, I am building uh, bigger. And, and, and again, I, I had to encounter these, I guess you would call them mentors along the way, like many of the men that I dated who gave me the confidence and uh, either mm-hmm. would hire me as a uh, consultant. Uh, you know, I, I worked for a few healthcare related creative agencies and I learned a lot. You know, I also had to take a break and I worked for the pharmaceutical uh, industry for about two years. And I was like, and so many people are like, what are you doing? You're taking a break from being an MP. You're going backwards. You're, there's such a stigma. It's like when you, be, once you become an MP, that's it. You're just an <laughs> identity thing, you know, which doing my one person show really helped me get out of that identity crisis that I was having as a nurse practitioner. And I see so many nurse practitioners going through that, you know, I'm on a lot of Facebook chat groups and there, I was like, oh, I thought it was only me. And everybody thought I was crazy. They're like, why do you think the way you do, you know? <laughs> and I had always been a creative person, much like you, like in high school, I uh, was always in acting. I was in thespians. I took up photography. I was in AP English. I would dress up to um, uh, talk about my stories. Like we had to do these elaborate, book uh, reports and you'd have to dress up like the characters and it, it was it was really a lot of fun wonderful yeah just being so, comfortable in front of people is like one of the, one of the best things that you know yeah take you further take you where you want to go definitely I had to take courses in that once I started to want to perform my poetry I had to I found a friend who was a thespian and he helped me to get on stage and most of the most of the problem was um just you know, innate fears, but also um, I wasn't prepared. I didn't prepare because just thinking about it made me nervous. So to, just to prepare to get on stage, you know, it was just very hard for me to do. But once I got the preparation down, then I was much more comfortable on stage, much more. Yeah. Yes, I had a co-producer that he was so into preparation. I mean, obsessively into preparation. And when there would be someone that would go on one of his shows and not really be prepared, he'd get, he was just beside himself. I mean, he gets so upset. He's like, that person did not prepare. They just <laughs> on there. <laughs> I've, I've done that. I've gone on and I try to go on cold and, and I freeze, mm-hmm. you know? And I, I remember I went, uh, I did a, con- a competitive storytelling show, which is very, very hard. This yeah. one's hard. Um, it, it's mm-hmm. called Right Club. You would love it. I think you would just so well because yeah. poets go there too, uh-huh. authors, storytellers, comedians as well. So you have to compete with someone else. They throw out a subject and you get two sides. Like you get a pro and a con. 
of whatever wow. the, the theme is and uh, and you have to talk on it and, and whoever and it's by audience recognition. And so one of my friends stood me up one time. I mean, he kept obsessively calling me, calling me, calling me and reading me his piece. And I didn't have time to prepare for mine. Like I tried to prepare as much as possible. And I go, oh, I think I got this in the bag. But he was so obsessive about it. So he made me believe he couldn't do it, right? So I, he totally um, gaslit me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so when we went on stage, oh I, you know, said my piece and I, I thought I had it. And he just went... And I was blown away because it was on politics. So it was really, really hard. And uh, and he was a political genius. Um, so he led me to believe he he just was lost. Oh. I was like, you were, I, I couldn't believe. I go, nice to be friends? Like, <laughs> you totally set me up. Uh-huh. But it was my fault. Like, that. that is one thing I, I learned is... Um, no matter who your opponent is, you've got to be ready for battle. Yeah. No matter what. Yeah. Whatever you're doing. <laughs> really, whatever. If you're going to get up on stage, you know, especially with poetry, you have to read and read and read and read and read aloud that poem that you're going to say. Or you're going to trip up on it. It's not going to sound right. You know, there's a lot of revision that has to be done. It's just, you know, people want to see somebody comfortable up on stage. They don't want to see people uncomfortable. It's very true. And and with I've coached many nurses to go up on stage. I actually love coaching much more than I love being on stage. I do love being on stage, but uh, my real niche is really getting people through their stories, which is really great. It's almost like a very shamanic process, taking them through their story journey. It really is very cathartic for them. It's very cathartic. Uh, And and my nurses who have never told a story on stage before do so well. They just knock it out of the park. So much so that I've had people who have won moth storytelling competitions uh, also telling stories with them on the same show that I produced. And and people will come up to the nurse every time. Wow, your, your story was amazing every single time and so I, I started to do research into that and, and it, it is something about they're able to follow commands much better or they're able to follow the coaching because they've never had it before so um, since they are a novice that's why they were able to do it so well uh, they're much more teachable than someone who's won many many storytelling competitions and, and stuff and I've found that in my coaching yeah, well, I think it's the authenticity, but also it's the subject matter, right? I mean, if you're if you're telling stories about things that happen in healthcare, it's very um, it's very poignant to many people. You know, when I when I read my poems, and and it touches people definitely. I know it does. I you know I write all different kinds of poems. It's not all just about my job, but when I do read the poems aloud that I write about my job, it really does um, open hearts and. You know, I get a lot of compliments from just the story itself in the poem, you know, because people have been through that, right? Right, totally. So have you taught nurses or other healthcare professionals uh, how to write poetry? I've done workshops, but mostly ekphrastic workshops, you know, um, and I have not done that. No, I haven't. 
but that's something that I want to do in my retirement. I mean, that's something I'm building up to um, create a medical humanities course that deals in prose and poetry. And um, so I think that would be really interesting. And I could totally I, see you doing that too. Well, yeah, thank you. Yeah. So I like to teach. Time. I used to teach ACLS and, co you know, all of that. I used to teach. I used to be an educator in my job in the ER. But, um, you know, I really do love to teach. But it's very... Um, I just love literature and I love poetry and I just, uh, you know, I feel like I can really get it across to, to nurses. And um, that was something I was going to do if I hung on to my job more, but then COVID happened, right? I mean, <laughs> dear God, that stopped everything. Stopped oh, everything, yeah. Didn't it? Yeah. Oh, it, you know, COVID, I, I see it um, as a good thing and a bad thing, you know, yes, like I do too. Say. <laughs> Uh, it was the worst of times. It was the best of times. <laughs> yeah. We are very much yeah. in a Dickens-esque type novel, yeah. uh, if you will. Um, in, in it, you know, maybe people will see it as just it's all bad. I'm sure they could see the good it's also brought um, in changes that maybe needed to happen, you know, where, where people like we just talked about, you get so on this karmic loop, this samsara of doing the same thing over and over again and going to these addictions that you don't even realize that you're doing it. You know, even if you're eating uh, chocolate chip cookies every night when you're coming home, you don't even, oh, I'm pretty healthy eater. I'm good. Well, <laughs> how many chocolate chip cookies? <laughs> you know, uh, or how many bottles of wine did you drink this week? Um, and such and such. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about being a dying coach. You yeah. What said, uh, yeah, talk about that because I think, again, that's really pertinent right now. Right. And I'll share yeah. some stories as well. Good. Um, yes. Well, I took um, a course at the Conscious Dying Institute in Boulder, Colorado, and um, it was a coach to be, it was a class to be a conscious dying coach. I'm not, I didn't get a certificate to be a doula. That would be your next step up. Um, and I don't think I'm going to do that, uh, but I did love the course. And what I learned from the conscious dying coaching was kind of the premise was there was all these things that you had people fill out if they were going to live only six more months. That's what they, so that they had to think about in six months, I'm going to die. This is what I want to happen from now to I die. And it was in the five domains of life, spiritual, medical, um, practical, what to do with your body, you know, um, emotional and mental. And, um, and so it was a lot of healing. It was a lot of writing letters. It was a lot of uh, getting just your, your stuff in order, right? What, how you wanted to be treated, where you wanted to die, how you wanted to die, what music you wanted to listen to, you know, who you wanted around you. It was really very beautiful. And in the course, we actually had to practice dying. It was really Wow. Amazing. What an experience. Wow. I can still like, oh my gosh, I can just feel what it felt like. I was sobbing, sobbing. Yeah. I and I don't sob. I don't cry easily at all. <laughs> and I really am not afraid of my own death. It was just to do that, to lie there and be anointed. You, like the other person was anointing you. There's a body anointing for uh -huh. the day. And that was that ceremony that we had to enact on one another. And uh, it was really powerful. 
really powerful. Oh my gosh, I can imagine. I have a writing prompt in my storytelling class, but it is in, I, I teach it in three parts. So if uh, I, I do have students that go all the way to the third part. And so the writing prompt is, uh, it's called 15 minutes to live. Okay. <laughs> and it is a writing prompt that my very first writing teacher gave us. And his name is Aaron Hen, and he is a playwright. So uh, a lot of students really hate this one. They don't want to do it. And, and I give them choices and they don't want to do this. Um, it's interesting what happens when someone does read this. Um, now, I, I do have a friend who, um, and I'm actually writing a screenplay about this, uh, who has DID, Dissociative Identity Disorder. And I gave him, and he is a writer as well. So I gave him this prompt. He was very excited about it uh, because um, <laughs> uh, <wow. laughs> it, it's kind of a long story, but um, I had told him one of his uh, identities needed to die, but I felt that the identity needed his last words to be known. Um, and, and it is a form of integration back into the soul. And I, I after I did this, I talked to a therapist friend of mine and he in, who deals with DID. And he's like, that is a fabulous exercise, you know? And, <laughs> you know? And, um, and, and I go, I know. And, and my friend actually thought it, he really, uh, he was like, oh, I really like this, but he wasn't ready to do it. He goes, when I am ready, I go, it's up to you. You know, I'm just giving it to you. You can do whatever you want with it, you know? You could either do it or don't do it. And he's a very, very intelligent uh, man. So it should be interesting to see. Um, uh, and occasionally he'll send me some of his writing, which is very, very interesting to read. So I that know is. It's that. Yes. Uh, so, so it is very, very cool. But so needed in our society because um, in, on my last podcast, I had my friend Masaki Misagawa on, and we were talking a little bit about death and dying and how people in society uh, and how, how we treat our elderly and how we treat our dead, where before people used to die in the home. Right. And now yeah. people are dying in nursing homes or what I've been seeing some nurses tweeting on Twitter, uh, what I've heard some of my friends telling me is because of COVID and what is going on and the deluge of people getting very, very sick and going into the ICUs and, and just the overwhelmment is that people are dying alone. They are dying alone. I saw a podcast on a, a, that ER doctor that does a lot of podcasts and he had a specialist and who was, who was furious at the healthcare system, furious at what yes. we're doing, that we, the ethics of healthcare demand that people do not die alone. <laughs> you know, they demand that. And here we're here we're like so totally unprepared for this pandemic that we can't even figure it out how to have the family, one family member, two family members at the bedside of a dying person. And he just was railing against the system. He said we are we are we are betraying everything that we yes. We are. And so he was really working to, to be able to, you know, set guidelines in place so that a person doesn't die alone. This whole thing of having iPads and telephones and, oh my gosh. It's, so it's really it's hard on everyone. It's hard on the patients. It's hard on the family. It's hard on the nurses, you know, and 
you know, my mom had MRSA went before she died. She died eight years ago, right around now. And she had MRSA. And I remember her complaining because she's such a vivacious woman. She was so funny and everybody loved her. And the nurses were always in a room, you know, they just loved being with her. And, um, and then when she got MRSA, that all stopped. She said it was so hard to get anybody to even answer the bell and the doctors would stand 10 feet away from her. Nobody would even examine her, you know, and, and she was so lonely and so dejected and so isolated just with MRSA. I mean, could you imagine yeah. a million times more with COVID? I mean, my God. Yeah. 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 But it, it's also, here's the thing. And I think that this is where your role is so important right now. And what you're doing is so important right now and how you're going to communicate that in the future. I mean, that's for you to know and, and to creatively figure out, which I, which is probably a very exciting time for you. I see that, yeah. but the soul, what happens to the soul? Nobody cares, you know, because right. of belief systems, where does the soul go? I mean, and um, I had Dr. Terry Palmer on here and he is a psychologist from London who I had the pleasure of meeting in London and he gave me his whole doctoral dissertation on spirit release therapy, which is interesting. And what he was doing uh, was research on um, nurses and doctors' perceptions of um, death and dying and the spirit and what happens to the spirit, you know, and, 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 and it depends on your belief system. Some spirits get stuck, you know, and they don't know that they're even dead. And, and I, I had, um, Laura, uh, Paula Fenn, who's also a psychologist and, and she does study spirit release as well. And she started to notice these attachments on people when uh, they would come into her office and she was just like, who <laughs> did I just hear that? Right. You know, and she started really tapping into what was going on and uh, noticing that um, the spirits were still wanting to live on and they would attach onto living bodies, you know, and it's all because of how the dying process was being taken care of. You know, um, there's a great Netflix show out, uh, um, Leslie Keene is one of the co-producers. She will be coming on the show. She wrote a book. I don't have it here. Um, oh, here it is. It's on my floor. Go figure. Very <laughs> it's called Surviving Death. Okay. And, um, and I think it is a six part series or a little bit more. Wow. And it does open up with a physician's experience of dying. Uh, and, and she was in she was in a kayaking trip in a, in a Latin American country and um, she went underwater and she was literally dead. She had four children and, and she was told it wasn't her time yet. And she goes through her experiences and how that really changed her as a physician and, and looking at death and dying with her patients. But there are many, many accounts and it is very, very fabulous about that whole process. I myself have um, studied shamanism for a little over 20 years now and have had many experiences and I've talked to many, many people around the world. Uh, I've literally given myself a, a doctorate in nursing practice on <laughs> all of this stuff that I'm doing, but uh, it, it's very fabulous and fascinating. Uh, once you look at all that and you look at the quantum physics uh, about how everything works, and, um, and it's just so important, 
you know, and, and just so needed. I, I re- my one friend, he just started getting all these articles from his mother uh, that belonged to his grandfather. And my friend did have a near-death experience. He almost overdosed or he did overdose and he was dead for a brief period and the paramedics brought him back. So he started to live his life very, very differently after that moment. He started doing very well, um, was able to connect with his higher source and get very grounded. So um, one day he was telling me about this lighter that he got from his grandfather, his grandfather, it was his grandfather. So his mother gave it to him. And he said, um, I want you to hold this lighter and he's holding and he's giving it to me. And he's like, tell me what you think about it. And I was like, Oh, so I sat there and I kind of meditated and I just, you know, and I asked him, I go, would you like to talk to your grandfather? He's coming through. And I was telling him what I was seeing and it was such an amazing connection. So I told him, I go, well, you know, you can do this too. You just sit with the article and just don't judge what's coming through and and just, and, and he literally does it all the time now. And he has these fabulous discussions um, and he's really true to form. And all of a sudden it's so magical what was happening. Slowly, his mother was sending him more stuff because he would ask his mother these questions and she would answer them. So he just got, this is so beautiful um, and so great for this time of the month for Valentine's day. So he got a love letter that his grandfather sent his grandmother while he was in the service. So he was a prisoner of war. In oh my World gosh, War. my dad was a prisoner of war. That's oh. that you're saying that. Yes. So, yeah. so he sent this love letter of sorts um, and he gave it to his husband and he had his husband read the love letter. He's like, I don't want to open it. First he was, he told me, he's like, I'm going to ask my grandfather what's in the love letter before just to see and then, and then he decided to give the letter to his husband and have his husband is a poet he's taken my class many times uh, <laughs> as well he's a, he loves to write uh, and he's a very deep cathartic storyteller uh poet uh, if you will and, and so he gave it to him to read and and he just said um oh and he sat there with a picture of his grandmother and he said just the energy and the love that he felt was just so so powerful and, and amazing and and he and in the letter it's so beautiful because he said that he was coming home and they he had already a, a small child he had a son uh, with his grandmother. And, um, and so he says, when I come home, I will give you that baby girl. And then his, um, his mother was born after that, which is just so beautiful and powerful. Yeah. Really lovely. I mean, stories like that, that's, that's why that, that, that is just all of our humanity and, and gives us hope on, yes, we're still all interconnected. Uh, My sister has that power. She has, she has a lot of like psychic power and she, she actually just got done uh, writing a book called My Darling, which is a love story between my mom and dad that is based in the war on wow. nine love letters that my that oh my gosh died, my father had written 99 letters from the war. So the book has all those letters in it and it was all my, you know, the love story and kind of a memoir of my sister. It's a beautiful book. She's actually going to be on WGN TV this Friday night, next Friday night or this oh Friday gosh. night. Yeah, right before Thanksgiving to... Um, to talk about the book oh my gosh yeah oh right before valentine's day you mean right they wanted to 
that is so cool. So funny that you would say that. Yeah, he was missing in action and she was pregnant. So it was this whole dramatic kind of love story. Yeah, yeah. It's that that's great. I could see it as a Hallmark Hall of Fame movie. I know, isn't that funny? Well, she has a friend who's moving to LA who wants to make it a movie. So good. She should pitch it to Hallmark Hall of Fame. It's not as uh-huh. hard as you think. I've had many friends get their movies made there. Oh, okay. So, yeah. So right. I, it is I actually Yeah. <laughs> I uh, I encountered some of the producers at a UCLA event a few years ago. Um, and, and they were, you know, talking, yeah, if you have a story, uh, a story, we're always looking, we're always open because they produce so much content. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, right. uh, kinda, yeah. So she should, she should them. totally sounds like one. Uh-huh. Excellent. Yeah. Awesome. So this has been an amazing discourse. Yeah. It's been Talk great. About where people can find you. Um, um, well, people can find me on Facebook right now. I haven't, after I retired, I was going to start building all these things for my writing. Right now I'm involved in writing a book and, um, the title of the book is going to be, um, Mending a Heart with Bailing Wire. And I love it. yeah, it is a good title. I had a, I live in mid Colorado and on the Eastern Plains, we have a lot of our patients from there. And one of our surgeons was asked what he was going to tie the sternum back together with or what he was going to mend his heart with. And the surgeon said bailing wire because it was a rancher. So, you know, I was just like, that's it. That's the title of a poem and that's the title of my book. So. Oh, yeah. Awesome. So awesome. Yeah. Cool. And so I will go a Facebook page that people can, you know, read my poems every day and contact me and right now that's where I, what I have yeah I'll put a link on there excellent yeah. well thank you so much Lynn and having me Celia I yeah. love meeting Every, you oh my gosh love meeting you too yes definitely and thank you nurses for that. I think that would be wonderful yeah yeah so um thank you everyone thanks for listening to our nurses and hypochondriacs podcast We love your support and we love our listeners. If you have some spare change, go ahead and throw some to us on our Venmo at Nurses in Hypocon. Also, go ahead and leave us a review on iTunes. We'd love that. And if you'd like to be a guest, go ahead and send us an email at nursesinhypochondriacs at gmail.com. 